0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: Section 17 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12 THE CONQUEST OF SCOTLAND 1297-1305 to 1305, PART 1 The last few years of Edward's reign were full enough of bitterness to the aged monarch. His disputes with the nobility were only ended by a humiliating renunciation of the dearest prerogatives of the crown. His attack on France led to nothing better than an unsatisfactory compromise. Even his triumph over the clerical opposition was only obtained as the result of infinite heart-burnings and vexatious personal disputes. If the king's second marriage brought him some measure of domestic happiness, it was more than counterbalanced by the growing certainty that his son Edward was in every way unworthy to succeed to so great a charge as the monarchy of Britain. But all the other troubles of Edward were insignificant as compared with the chronic and growing difficulty of keeping Scotland subdued. He made many sacrifices to get leisure and opportunity to put down the stubborn pride of his Scottish subjects. But one rising was scarcely put down then another burst out. Again and again the thankless work of conquest had to be renewed, and at last the king went down to his grave with the full consciousness that success was farther off than ever. We have followed the course of Edward's policy in Scotland down to his first conquest of that land in 1296. That conquest had been accomplished with such consummate ease that Edward very reasonably inferred that it was as final and thorough as his conquest of Wales had been twelve years before. But Scotland was not like Wales. It was not only that it was bigger, stronger, and richer than the Western Principality, though these facts in themselves went a long way to explain the difference— in the very divergencies in race and type that Scotland presented, a further explanation of these differences was to be found. Both the Scottish nobles and the Scottish people were made of sterner stuff than the excitable, hot-headed, and disorganized Welsh. It was easy, by an appeal to their interests, for Edward to obtain a temporary submission from the greedy and self-seeking Norman nobility of Scotland. But the Scots nobles only acknowledged Edward as king so long as they believed that his distant rule would be a nominal rule. Under his guidance, they expected to enjoy the turbulent independence of their brethren in Ireland and the Welsh marches. They had no love for King Edward, though they had a contempt for King John. As soon as they perceived that Edward intended that the conquest should be a real one, they began to manifest symptoms of opposition. They had not signed the ragman roll that English ministers should lord it over the land and ride roughshod over their most cherished liberties. Moreover, Behind the politic opposition of the Scottish nobles there lay the growing sense of indignation of the Scots people. The violent policy of Edward was gradually welding together the sturdy Anglian peasant of the Lothians, the Anglicized Gael of the Northeast, and the half-Anglicized Britain of the Southwest into a real and vigorous national unity as the Norman conquerors of England had fused together Mercian, Northumbrian, and West Saxon by common servitude, so that a single English nation, strong, determined, and united, rose out of the opposition to Angevin despotism, so now the oppressive policy of Edward in Scotland was slowly but surely creating the modern Scottish people." The very fact that the chief formative elements in the new nation were English only added to the severity of the struggle. The Scots, or the most vigorous part of them, shared nearly everything with their would-be conquerors—tongue, institutions, traditions, and character. It was not truly regarded a war of two races. It was more properly a civil strife, a great schism of the English race within itself. The struggle was on that account the more stubbornly and persistently fought, and all the statecraft of the great Edward could not reconcile a proud and haughty people to the extinction of its local life. The fears of the Scots nobles that Edward meant to make himself a real king may have first suggested an opposition to the conqueror. The opposition of the Scottish people to the tyranny of Edward's ministers soon made the struggle an irreconcilable one. As usual, Edward was very badly served. Just as twenty years before, all Edward's professions of allowing the Welsh of the Four cantreds to continue in the enjoyment of their own laws were but a mockery in the face of the misdeeds wrought by Geoffrey de Langley in Edward's name, so now the English king's protestations that he would rule Scotland justly after the ancient way was belied by the greedy vaingloriousness of a Cressingham and the grim unreasoning severity of an Ormsby. Before long, A whole crowd of outlaws and fugitives had been driven by the severity of Edward's ministers to take refuge among the hills and moors. The misgovernment grew worse through the non residence of Earl Warren, the king's lieutenant, who shirked the rigors of a northern winter and spring. The outlawed bands came down from their hiding places and wreaked a bloody revenge on their English oppressors. The rural population welcomed them as deliverers. Before long, guerrilla forays were exchanged for open warfare. In May of 1297, a formidable revolt broke out, headed by William Wallace, whose name, Wallace means simply the Welshman, bespoke his affinity to the old Strathclyde Welsh, and whose gentle birth, gigantic form, iron courage, unbending resolution, and persistent and heroic opposition to the English, to whom it was believed he had sworn no oaths of fealty, made him an ideal leader of a revolted nation. The people flocked to his standard with enthusiasm. More slowly and with greater caution, many of the nobles and bishops forgot their oaths to Edward and banded themselves with the national hero. Earl Warren, recalled to his post by the rebellion, was powerless to withstand the mighty rush of the popular wave. In September, Wallace put to flight the English army at Stirling Bridge and slew Hugh Cressingham, the worst of the oppressors. Next month, the victorious partisan, dashed over the borders and harried Cumberland and Westmoreland. Scotland was freed from end to end. The rule of the English Earl had been succeeded by the government of William Wallace and Andrew Murray, the generals of the Army of the Kingdom of Scotland, and the wardens of the absent King John. While the Scots' insurrection was running its course, Edward was still occupied in Flanders, whither he had taken a large army of Englishmen and Welshmen. But he made no way against the French and was involved in all sorts of difficulties with his allies. Philip the Fair burst into Flanders, captured Lille, and occupied Bruges. The conquest of Bruges cut off Edward, who was at Ghent, from the sea. A vigorous attack was therefore ordered to be made upon the French positions. The French were almost defeated when the two wings of the ill-assorted allied army destroyed by their mutual animosities the hope of victory. The Flemings fought so fiercely with the English and Welsh about the booty that the day was lost. Boniface VIII now offered his mediation. Both Edward and Philip were averse to recognizing any right of the Pope to interfere in his official capacity in the disputes of sovereign and independent princes, but both wished to end the struggle and agreed, while rejecting the proposals of the Pope, to accept the friendly offers of the man, Benedict of Gaeta, who then filled the papal throne. A two-year's truce was patched up, which finally ripened into a definite peace. After the truce was signed, there arose a violent dispute between Edward's turbulent soldiers, largely Welsh and Irish, and the townsmen of Ghent. It culminated in a two-days pitched battle in the streets, during which Edward was exposed to considerable personal risk. Extricated from this trouble by the strenuous efforts of Count Guy, Edward had now leisure to return to Britain, where his presence was sorely needed. In March 1298, he landed in his kingdom and at once busied himself with the preparations for an expedition to suppress the revolt of Wallace. He held a hasty parliament at York but the Scots lords, to whom summonses had been sent as well as to the English peers, unanimously disregarded his commands. The feudal levies were then summoned to meet at Roxburgh, a strong Scottish fortress that still remained in English hands. Edward piously prepared himself for his work of conquest by a pilgrimage to his favorite shrine of St. John of Beverley. On Midsummer Day, the English host mustered at Roxborough. There was a splendid array of heavily armed knights and men-at-arms, all mounted on horseback. Edward, who was in many ways an old-fashioned soldier, regarded the feudal cavalry as the real strength of an army, and on this occasion he had so little concern of the infantry that he only enforced the attendance of those who were bound to serve on horseback. Nevertheless, A large number of volunteers served on foot, nearly all of them being Welsh and Irish. But the gallant show was far from unanimous or wholehearted. The earls of Norfolk and Hereford refused to fight unless the king again confirmed the charters. But the bishop of Durham and the earls of Lincoln and Warren pledged their word that if the king came back victorious, he would do what the two earls required. The English host now advanced into Scotland. Wallace had retired beyond the fourth, and no opposition was offered to Edward's advance to Edinburgh, whither the army went on slowly, plundering and devastating the country on the line of route. Having taken possession of the capital, Edward marched westwards as far as Kirkliston, a village on the borders of Mid and West Lothian, where he made a long halt. It was dangerous to advance farther, until Durleton Castle, between Edinburgh and Dunbar, which was strongly held by the Scots, had been captured, and when the warlike Bishop of Durham at last succeeded in this task, there were such grave difficulties in provisioning the army that Edward was still forced to remain stationary at Kirkliston. A contrary wind prevented the provision ships from sailing up the Forth and the only vessel that arrived had a large cargo of wine, which by Edward's orders were distributed among the soldiers. The irregular Welsh infantry had suffered most from the lack of victuals and were dying off in large numbers, but Edward now sent such a bountiful supply of wine to revive their spirits that they all got drunk. A quarrel broke out between the Welsh and the English men-at-arms. The Welsh slew eighteen Englishmen, but the English retaliated, killing a large number of Welshmen and putting the rest to flight. The Welsh now talked of joining the Scots. Edward professed to set little store on their action either way. "'What does it matter,' he said, "'if enemies join with enemies?' Welsh and Scots are alike our enemies. Let them go where they like, for with God's blessing we shall in one day obtain our revenge over both nations. But the lack of victuals continued, and on the 21st of July Edward gave orders to retreat to Edinburgh. At that moment a boy brought the news that Wallace, having marched to within six leagues on the English, was encamped at Falkirk and proposed to follow the English up on their retreat to Edinburgh and surprise their camp on the following night. As the Lord lives, cried Edward, there will be no need for them to follow me, for on this very day I will march forward and meet them face to face. He at once ordered the English army to advance to Linlithgow, where it encamped in the presence of the enemy on the open heath. That night was an anxious one in the English camp. The prospect of battle had again reconciled the Welsh and English, and every man slept as best he might with his shield as his only pillow and his armor as his bedclothes, while the horses kept ready for action by their master's side had nothing to taste but the hard steel of their bits. In the midst of the night, a wild cry arose in the English ranks. Everyone believed that the enemy was at hand, but all that had happened was that the horse of the king, tethered like that of the meanest trooper to his rider's side, had trodden upon the sleeping Edward and broken two of his ribs. But when day dawned, the king mounted his horse as if nothing had happened and marshaled his troops for the great battle that was at hand. It was the 22nd of July, the Feast of St. Mary Magdalen. At early dawn the English marched through the streets of Linlithgow and saw the Scots' lances glistening on the crest of a neighboring hill. But when the English advanced, the enemy retreated to a remoter and stronger situation. A halt was therefore ordered, and mass was said before the king and bishop. The English then advanced against the army of Wallace, now drawn up to meet their attack. The generals of this period placed all their trust in the heavy armed feudal cavalry. But with half the Scots' nobles still waiting upon events, there was but a scanty muster of horsemen among the insurgent host, and Wallace was forced to rely on the footfolk that constituted the mass of his army. The great danger to infantry was less they should be swept away and overwhelmed in the fierce rush of a heavy-armed cavalry charge. To prevent this, Wallace hit upon a novel plan, the conception of which shows him to have had the makings of a great general in him and strikingly anticipates Wellington's tactics at Waterloo. He drew his pikemen up in four great squares or circles in close formation And with palisades to further strengthen their ranks. A morass protected their front, archers filled up the gaps between the squares, and a scanty corps of mounted knights formed a rear guard. It was a strange order of battle, and nothing like it had been seen in Britain since the cavalry of William the Norman had scattered the footfolk of Harold on the hill of Hastings. An English poet describes vigorously enough the strange scene. Their spares point over a point, so sere and so thicker, and fast together a joint, to say it was fair liquor, as a castel they stole that was walled with stone. They wende no man of blow to them sold afgone. As Wallace contemplated the novel array, he exclaimed triumphantly, I have brought you to the ring, Hop gif ya can but though the Scottish partisan had conceived the possibility of resisting cavalry by closely trained infantry, planted in a compact mass, he was not destined to see the triumph of a system which within a generation was to revolutionize the art of warfare. The Scots at Falkirk did not succeed as the Flemings at Courtray, the Swiss at Morgarten, and the very Scots themselves at Bannockburn succeeded in withstanding the fierce rush of the line of mail-clad warriors on their mail-clad steeds. The main reason for this was to be found in the generalship of Edward, who, while adhering in the main to the old-fashioned tactics of a cavalry charge, had skill enough to modify them in such a way as to meet the new danger involved in Wallace's formation. In three great battles or divisions. Edward poured his host on to the Scots' army. The first line stuck in the morass and fell into some confusion, but the second line wheeled about and vigorously assailed the enemy in flank. The scanty Scots' horse galloped away in a panic. Their numbers were much too few to make resistance possible, but their withdrawal compelled the Scots' archers also to seek safety in flight. This left The four squares to bear the whole brunt of Edward's attack. For some time, the serried masses of pikemen held their own gallantly behind their palisades. Edward saw that there was no prospect of breaking through their ranks by the mere momentum of a cavalry charge. He therefore poured in showers of arrows upon the squares, and before long, the deadly hail began to have its effect. Gaps were soon made in the ranks through which the English knights galloped in. With the breaking up of their ranks, the Scots' army was turned into a mob of fugitives. The light-armed Welsh and Irish footmen reaped the spoils of the victory. While heavy loss was inflicted on the Scots, only two knights and a few of the common folk fell on the English side. Wallace fled and soon withdrew from the country. His short, strange career of generalship ended as suddenly as it had begun. This is the more wonderful, as Edward reaped no very great results from his brilliant victory at Falkirk. He consumed a fortnight inactively at Stirling, while his broken ribs grew together again. Lack of victuals prevented an advance beyond Perth, and compelled the abandonment of all thoughts of a conquest of the Highlands. Edward, on his recovery, resolved on the conquest of the southwest, where Robert Bruce, Earl of Carrick, son of the cautious lord of Lochmaben and grandson of the competitor, held the chief power, and strove to secure his own independence with little care for either side. But provisions were still harder to find upon the barren moors of Galloway than in the fair cornfields and pastures of the Lothians. September saw Edward back at Carlisle, despite his great victory. The conquest of Scotland had hardly been begun. Operations for the year were perforce suspended when the selfish policy of Norfolk and Hereford insisted on an immediate return to their homes. End of Section seventeen.